Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. In New Zealand and throughout the world, Sir Edmund Hillary has a unique standing. It goes beyond the ascent to the top of Mount Everest in 1953, and even beyond his further adventures with trips up other mountains and to the North and South Poles. What's really of note is the work that he did in Nepal in the decades that followed. You're listening to Seeds Talking Purpose, and this is Stephen Mo. In our conversation today, we hear from someone who had a unique opportunity to get to know Sir Edmund Hillary at the end of his life. Mark Prane has himself been involved in a fascinating array of careers ranging from opera singer to Greenpeace activist. He is also the founding director of the Hillary Institute of International Leadership, which each year recognizes someone in mid-career that displays certain special attributes. Sir Edmund Hillary was involved in the founding of the Institute, and this is how Mark recalled their first meeting. And I remember walking into the room, um, uh, Ed was 84, 85. Right. And um, before I could say anything, and as your listeners are becoming aware, I can, uh, I can wrap it on for quite extensively, so I'm not given to, uh, uh, to not uh, speaking a lot. Um, Ed strode across the room, extended his hand to me and said, I've Googled you. Really? <laughs> and my heart sank, um, because as with a lot of people, if you Google me, there's quite a lot on Google about me, but uh, quite what is fact and what is fiction, um, of course, is the province of Google in many ways. Anyway, um, uh, so I didn't know what to say to that. So you weren't expecting that? I certainly wasn't first, expecting uh, that, not from an 85-year-old, no, and, and yeah. certainly not from Sir Edmund Hillary, and... Uh, and basically what had happened was Deborah had given him the pitch in advance, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, using my disciplines from the business community. It was no more than two pages. <laughs> and uh, he had read it. And uh, then again, before I could say anything at all, he said, where are we going to do this? Not should we do this. Right. Uh, where are we going to do this? So you really got a lot of positive reaction every time you raised it. Precisely. So, um, yeah, and then again, still stumped for words, uh, he followed that up with, well, we should do it in sight of the mountain. And of course, the mountain he was referring to was Araki Cook. Mm, mm. Um, and I said, well, as it happens, Sir Eben, um, the starters of this game down here uh, uh, happened to be within sight of the mountain. And so he said, well, too many bloody things happen in Auckland. Let's do it based in Christchurch. He understood right. it was international, but it needed to have a New Zealand base. Need to have a base, yeah. On each episode of this show, I've been interviewing a variety of inspiring people, and I'd encourage you to look at the back catalogue, because this is now the 19th in a series of these interviews. In the next episode, we'll be speaking with Catherine Brown, who's the CEO of the Lord Mayor's Foundation in Melbourne, which gives out grants and funding to charities and social enterprises. To ensure you don't miss out on that and other upcoming episodes, hit subscribe. I also wanted to say there's a podcast that I've been listening to recently called On Being with Krista Tippett. And if you're enjoying these podcasts, then I think you might enjoy that one too. She goes pretty deep with people in her interviews, so you might want to check that one out. And if you know of a show that you think I would enjoy, then please reach out because I'd love to expand my listening as well. Now let's get into the interview with Mark. So I'm pleased to be able to welcome Mark Prane, who's the founding director of the Hillary Institute of International Leadership. Thank you for joining me today. 
Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about um, the Institute and, and what it's doing and, and what it's done in the past. But I'm also really curious um, about Edmund Hillary himself and your memories of him and his involvement in setting up the Institute. Uh, but before we get into that, I'd love to talk about your own life and your own journey. And I find when we're talking about purpose, it's often helpful to, to trace a person's life and where they're from. So if we could just talk a little bit about yourself uh, and where you come from. I guess my, mine is a story of two halves, really. Um, my childhood was dominated by two stories which have played out in adulthood. The first was uh, the arts. I was actually a, a, a boy soprano who toured New Zealand at the age of 11. Is that right? Um, having won what in those days was the equivalent of a Simon Cowell type of contest. Um, and uh, all of us were educated in in the arts in one way or another. Uh, mm. When I say all of us, five children. Um, by a family which the other half of the story was dominated also by very strong values. So my father was uh, um, the head of the St. Vincent de Paul Society. So my mother's refrain was always charity begins at home um, because frequently... Uh, our home would be invaded by people he'd picked up off the street for dinner. Um, and uh, we were not a wealthy clan. But uh, So those two strands uh, really dominated my childhood. Mm. Uh, my father died at, uh, when I was 13. Uh, by the age of 16, I had uh, left home and went to live in a Marxist community, which was working on the streets in Dunedin. Um, and I transferred to Wellington and continued to work dominantly with the gangs and in uh, issues, obviously, which are still present today, like addiction and so on and so forth. And after two or three years, um, we're talking the generation of uh, influences like Hemi Baxter and Jim and Marion Kebbell um, mm. in New Zealand in those days, in terms of what was going on at that in that kind of arena. Um, and uh, about the age of 20, um, I began to realise I was... Uh, in need of uh, re-embracing the arts side of my life. Uh, <laughs> and uh, So the days said, of being a soprano had, had The days faded. of soprano had been long gone. But, um, <laughs> somebody, I can't remember who, said to me, look, they've just established this uh, training ground called Toifakari, which um, is the equivalent of the Juilliard in New York in terms of a training ground practice. Hmm. And you should apply. And... Uh, so a combination of being pretty exhausted with the street-level work with the gangs and... Um, <laughs> feeling that I wanted to go there, um, I duly applied. I was rather staggered that I got in. Uh, and I then uh, was privileged to spend uh, uh, the next two to three years in effectively a monastic situation, which um, Toifakari, of course, still New Zealand's dominant um, arts training institution, uh, has grown considerably since then. But in those days, there were only 12 of us um, each year, and uh, it was a very intense and wonderful training ground. Yeah. So it was New Zealand's first professional training ground, mm. really, for actors. Yeah. Um, so I emerged out of there, I think, about 1979. Um, I then spent the next 10 years uh, as an actor, and the, the gag was that I played everything from Lennon to Lennon, as in John Lennon to Vladimir Ilyich Lennon, on stage. Um, and um, I found myself at the Mercury Theatre at that, uh, the end of that tenure in Auckland with the wonderful Jonathan Hardy, who was directing at the time. 
And we were given a challenge to resurrect opera as a professional form huh. in New Zealand, uh, largely because we were the only house of uh, sufficient scale um, to uh, look at that. Cut a long story short, the, um, the tenor uh, one day in um, Rigoletto fell over and Jonathan said to me, you sing, don't you, darling? And I said, um, yes, well, I've done a lot of musicals and uh, <laughs> jazz is my first love. And my sister's a pretty famous opera singer, but no, I'm not an opera singer. And uh, Anyway, to cut a long story short, within six months as a combination of events, uh, they had me singing in opera. It was a short hop from there out of New Zealand to Europe and ultimately the States. Um, the challenge for me, however, was that for those who know the form, um, technically speaking, opera is about the perfection of what's called the tessitura, which is a line in the voice technically, which means that no matter what the note is, um, you have full expressive dynamic range because your technique is strong enough to mm. support that. This is difficult for most people, uh, particularly difficult if you've had uh, you know, a dozen years of playing a hundred different roles, uh, which are anything but about perfection in the line of the voice. Mm. Um, and uh, so as I got to the bigger houses, I was, um, including ultimately the Metropolitan, where I did uh, an audition with Jimmy Levine, um, I was having progressively more difficulty technically. And uh, it was suggested to me that part of the reason might be because I was deaf. Um, I remember saying, don't be ridiculous, I can't have got this far deaf. You, know, you don't sing with 78-piece orchestras if you're deaf. Uh, but it was uh, persuaded, I was persuaded to go and check this out. Mm. And a little Jewish doctor in New York showed me in the early days of computers, so we're talking 1985 maybe, um, showed me my um, right ear on the computer screen. So if you imagine holding your hand up like this and your fingers are normal, that was my right ear. Right. And then he showed me my left and my fingers were all bent double. Uh, and he said, you do realize you're 80% deaf in your left ear. Mm. Um, and what happened? And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's a kind of a crush injury. Did you play sport? And one of the other things about my childhood was, yes, I did. I, was, I played for Otago and so on and so forth up until the age of about 18 or 19. And I was concussed out of the game. And I had been compensating all those years without knowing it. Wow. Um, uh, for what, in fact, was perfect hearing in one ear and 80% loss in the other. Uh, that precipitated a fairly steep decline in my uh, uh, operatic career, as you can imagine, right. like top sport. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so all these years you, you hadn't even realized? Hadn't even realized. Wow. And, and as is often the case, uh, when things go wrong, you tend to, um, you need to be aware of asking the first question, what's the premise on which you're mm. asking this question? It never occurred to me that, uh, I was asking the wrong question. Mm. Uh, well, it, it, well, firstly, it garroted my career. It meant it meant that I wouldn't be going any further. Yeah. Uh, it and precipitated an emotional crisis as well, because of course I'd been on a fairly steep ascent, um, and you know you don't get to that level in the arts um, without doing a lot of work, and you don't mm. get without a lot of ambition and so mm. on. So. And while I had never much liked the politics of the arts, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, politics of opera, uh, which are a different thing from the arts, mm. um, I had nonetheless, you know, became fiercely uh, ambitious and I thought I was destined for great things. 
So it was quite a challenge, and I was about thirty-one by now. Yeah. So how did you how did you cope with that, or what was the? Well, not well. And uh, I remember my personal relationship at the time uh, was the first casualty of that. Um, mm. And um, I spent some time um, reflecting and thinking, uh, what next? Mm. Um, I didn't really want to go back backwards uh, in terms of resurrecting my acting career, for instance. Mm. Um, and so I um, found myself one day wandering down the street in um, uh, Australia, actually, and I came across a Greenpeace office. <coughs> mm. And for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, I thought, hmm, uh, I'll go in and have a chat. Mm. So I went in and had a chat, and um, the uh, person in question behind the other side of that chat from Greenpeace was um, a lovely fellow, and... Uh, um, he um, said to me, well, uh, why are you interested? And I said, well, I don't really know. I had this childhood of social uh, investment at my level, and uh, I think the work you're doing is well worth doing, and I have no skills at all, but uh, I'm interested, and perhaps um, we could have a conversation. He said, well, look, I've got a philosophy degree, so I'm no use to anyone. <laughs> um, and uh, how about you go back to New Zealand, and uh, and I'll make sure you can get involved in Greenpeace. Mm. So that led to five years uh, in Greenpeace, uh, uh, most of it on the barricades in one way or another. But towards the end of that time, more on the management side and more involved in understanding some of the deeper, in terms of impact, uh, complexities, if you will. So while I always have an activist spirit and I think that activism is always necessary, uh, of course, in our complex world, you also have to understand that it's in and of itself uh, not enough. Mm. So, for instance, about, towards the end of my time there, I became involved in... Uh, working with business and with governments of various kinds. Um, and so I became interested in where the most influence could be exerted. Right. And what, what time periods are we talking about? This late 1980s then, if you had 19, the diagnosis yes, for your no, Greenpeace, era. 1989 through 95. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was always one of the heresies I used to be interested in at the time was I was fond of telling my colleagues in no uncertain terms that... Um, Thank God for the whaling campaign. And uh, let's hope we never solve the whaling campaign, which sounds like a heresy. Um, but the point was that in terms of our revenues, um, not only New Zealand but internationally, uh, were driven in huge part by that one campaign. Why? Mm. Because it touched people emotionally. Mm. If you're talking about toxics or if you're talking about uh, climate change, mm. uh, which are more esoteric, if you will, um, it's harder to get people... Uh, to feel agency. Mm. Uh, and it's happening at such a big level, isn't it? Whereas if you can have a picture that someone can identify with and say... Precisely. Yeah. And uh, that was also a lesson I carried with me, that we needed to get more um, you know, smarter, frankly, about how uh, the movement generally, and I'm talking about the environmental movement generally, um, communicated the need um, to... Uh, encourage people to participate and not just financially mm. but to actually in, the, in that sense of giving people agency how could they become involved um, and um, mm. so I I left the organisation really thinking that I, I needed to find a way to um, achieve that uh, more directly and uh, I was fascinated by the role of cities particularly in climate related issues um, and of course, we see the echo of that now rather wonderfully with uh, what Bloomberg has done and is doing in the States and in city 
leadership that's still going on in the states, regardless of the federal bailout with Trump. Um, and uh, so I formed an organization called Sustainable Cities, um, influenced by a number of my international colleagues in this space, based here in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started looking at how you could galvanize action at multi-levels within cities to model uh, responses to uh, some of these larger, more difficult questions. Uh, and it was fascinating. Um, and we had a uh, coalition with an urban design company, an international urban design company, uh, which had a lot of experience in various theatres in the world on, in this space. Uh, and uh, that went on for about five years. Um, and um, I... So this is early 2000s, is This it? is early 2000s. Yeah. And, in, in, uh, and was that taking all of your time, full-time doing it, that? Or it was you... taking most of my time, but I was increasingly also getting involved in working directly with business. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this is the early days of things like the uh, World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, some of the most obvious... Um, Voices which are now completely current today, like Richard Branson and uh, Stephen Schmidtheiny and so on and so forth, were leading the charge. Um, and so I became a quasi-consultant in a program called Redesigning Resources, which was about working with leading businesses across sectors as to what they could do in terms of business leadership uh, in this space. Mm. And... Um, and did you enjoy that? It's quite I, a contrast to the Greenpeace days, was it? Or, it was, you know? it, it, yeah, very much so, in, in, in that, uh, of course, each one of these businesses had a different uh, agenda. Uh, here in New Zealand, uh, the warehouse was one example. Orion Energy was involved at that time. Um, and so the task was to look, in general terms, at what they could do collectively as a group, and there was about a dozen of the businesses uh, involved. Mm. Um and then what each individually could do in terms of modeling their own action. Right. Um, and um, about three years, where are we now? It must have been about three years into that, I said to them, um, you don't need me anymore. You've um, um, taken steps yourselves, which are uh, in terms of, again, agency, in terms of providing a fishing rod uh, uh, rather than solutions. Mm. Um, you have people internally who are very capable of carrying this on. And you don't need me, so how about I, I leave the building? Um, because it, it was pretty consuming if you're answerable to 12 different chief executives. Um, and um, uh, it's uh, you can imagine it, uh, each with their own idea of, mm. of, of what you can contribute. Mm. So you were able to say, my work here is done, Pretty time much. to move on. <laughs> and uh, and I remember the board in that particular organization saying to me, well, um, you need to leave us with an idea. At least we agree that you know, you're know you no longer particularly uh, necessary, but um, why don't you leave us with an idea? Right. And I, I, I would make the point here that while I'm not uh, in any sense a fan of, of lack of preparation or research or doing your homework or whatever, I'm also... Um, quite strong on the idea that if you make a very concrete plan, um, the gods will tend to laugh at you <laughs> um, if you think it's what you've written down is actually going to play out. Right. And it really doesn't matter what the arena is. Um, so I thought, well, the best way I can leave the building here is to come up with the silliest idea I can possibly imagine so that they won't take it seriously. Right. And it will actually be a genuine exit strategy rather than not. So... Overnight, I thought, well, how about we, uh, uh, here in New Zealand, take our perhaps most celebrated global citizen? Mm. And uh, because 
not only of his extraordinary um, heroic journey, uh, talking about the mountains and, and, and the ice, but also most particularly in the work that he had done for 50-some years uh, back in the Himalaya. Mm. Um, uh, and is the reason that you chose him, had you had some connection with him previously? No, or no connection you, whatsoever. Right. Um, but the idea was how could we honour his international legacy of leadership? Yeah. And um, so I came back in, said, here's the idea. We should create uh, an international organisation in Ed's name uh, and it'll um, be at uh, a reasonable scale and it'll focus on the idea of mid-career and supporting people in mid-career and we will mm-hmm. honour one a year and it'll be fantastic. And they looked at me a bit stunned and that was exactly the reaction I was hoping for. You were, and you were thinking that's what, they would, that's what would happen? <laughs> so the plan's going well so far. The plan's going well so far. <laughs> so they said, well, that's fantastic. Thank you for leaving us with an idea. Bye-bye. And out I went and the uh, phone rang again at 7 o'clock and the chairman said to me, uh, we need you to come back. And I thought, oh, my heart sank. And I said, look, I quite enough corporate watchers, thanks. Um, you know, I don't... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, basically, I nonetheless went back and I was greeted with the idea, well, actually, this is a terrific idea and you're right, um, you're out of here. Uh, <laughs> but in fact, so are we. We've dissolved the board. We're getting on with it in our own business. Uh, there's 100,000 left in the kitty. Uh, it's yours. Wow. So I suddenly found myself, oh, it's yours on condition that you use it for this great idea. Right. Uh, this great idea that you've pitched to us. <laughs> as, precisely. <laughs> and of course you believe in it. So, so, so this yeah. was the dragon's den, which I didn't really intend to have an I outcome see. suddenly thrown at me. So of course I was hoisted on my own petard, which again right. is what I mean by the accidental plan. Yes. Know? And I remember doing making two calls. One to, uh, I knew if I was going to do this effectively, I would need to do two things quickly. I would need to find... Uh, a bag man uh, would need initial capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother-in-law, interestingly from my opera days, was uh, Chris Doig, who's sadly no longer with us, but mm-hmm. um, famous, as many of your listeners will know, here in New Zealand uh, for being a, sort of a renaissance figure in both the arts and, and uh, uh, sport, um, but also famous as a bag man. Um, if you needed somebody to come in with a bold gesture and ask for a lot of money, uh, Christopher was that man. So I said, Chris, I've got this great idea. Um, I need you to tell me it's idiotic. Mm. Uh, quickly, please. And he said, no, 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 I'm with you. So I idea. <laughs> Another uh, signal. Yes. Yeah. And then the next thing I needed was this idea of it was going to be genuinely global. I needed a diplomatic figure who could help me build uh, a board of credibility. So I rang David Cagle, who's another old friend. I said, David, uh, tell me this is a silly idea. And he said, no, I'm with you. Uh, so we met for coffee, the three of us, um, and... Um, um, I can't remember all of the detail, but what I do remember from that was they both said to me, as you have asked, uh, what does Ed think? Mm. Uh, to which I responded, well, I've never met him. <laughs> uh, and I said, I, I, it's probably a good idea if we get on a plane and go and have this conversation. To which they responded, well, no, uh, this is your idea. Uh, you get on the plane and <laughs> have that conversation. Yeah. So what year are we talking now? We're now this talking is... 2005. Right. Um, and early 2005. Yeah. And did you have, it sounds like you had connections who maybe knew him to introduce you? Or? I did. Uh, and the connection in question, again, was an arts-related woman um, who was known colloquially in Auckland as the Rottweiler. And Deborah uh, ran an organisation which was basically, I can't remember the name of it, but it had most of New Zealand's uh, sort of key celebrities involved. So she was the agent mm. for Paul Holmes and she was the agent for you know, most of our famous cricketers and so on and so forth. Right. And celebrities and arts people and, of course, Ed. And um, so I rang her uh, 
and mindful of her reputation. Uh, and really, again, said, look, Deborah, do you think this is idiotic? In which case she said, no, 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 I'll set it up. So mm. I then found myself having a meeting with, with her and Ed himself and Lady June. Um, and I remember walking into the room. Um, uh, Ed was 84, 85. Right. And... Um, before I could say anything, and as your listeners are becoming aware, I can uh, I can wrap it on for quite extensively, so I'm not given to uh, uh, to not uh, speaking a lot. Um, Ed strode across the room, extended his hand to me, and said, "I've Googled you." Really, <laughs> and my heart sank um, because, as with a lot of people, if you Google me, there's quite a lot on Google about me, but. Uh, Quite what is fact and what is fiction, um, of course, is the province of Google in many ways. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so I didn't know what to say to that. So you weren't expecting that? I certainly wasn't first, expecting uh, that. Not first from an 85-year-old no, and certainly yeah. not from Sir Edmund Hillary. And, uh, and basically what had happened was Deborah had given him the pitch in advance, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, using my disciplines from the business community. It was no more than two pages. <laughs> And uh, he had read it, and uh, then again, before I could say anything at all, he said, where are we going to do this? Not, should we do this? Right. Uh, where are we going to do this? So you really got a lot of positive reaction every time you raised it. Precisely. So, um, yeah, and then again, still stumped for words, uh, he followed that up with, well, we should do it in sight of the mountain. And of course, the mountain he was referring to was Araki Cook. Mm, mm. Um, and I said, well, as it happens, Sir Eben, um the starters of this game down here uh, 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 happened to be within sight of the mountain. And so he said, well, too many bloody things happen in Auckland. Let's do it based in Christchurch. He understood right. it was international, but it needed to have a New Zealand base. needed to have a base, yeah. So that was it uh, as a start point. And oh, the so, only you, so you got the blessing. Got the blessing. Right, right, right away. Right away. Yeah. And uh, I was waiting then for the conditions. Right. Um, and uh, the conditions boiled down to one thing. He said, let's not announce this until we are ready. Mm. Uh so what transpired then, which was a great privilege for me, was a period of about 18 months uh, of working directly with Ed on the recipe, uh, the design, how he wanted um, his own involvement expressed, mm-hmm. culminating in he telling me that he was going to go down to the ice for the last time in January 2007. Um, Helen Clark was going with him. Um, and Helen, uh, we had... Um, approached uh, with a view to being patron, which you graciously accepted. And indeed, speaking of our initial capital investment, uh, one Jane Cameron, um, who was the initial investor, uh, was also going to be part of that party. Uh, And he said, we're going to announce it on the 22nd of January. And I said, that's my 50th birthday, Ed. And he looked at me as though he was confusing him with somebody who gave a damn. And that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Um, And uh, so technically, we launched um, officially on... 22nd of January 2007, uh, and then sadly, as your listeners will know, um, I then spent my 51st birthday at his wake. Uh, right. So um, wow. we so, had a br- very brief but rather wonderful window. Yeah, and just describe, I'm sure listeners will be fascinated because obviously few people would have had the chance to interact with him the way that you did. Mm. Um, just describe him as a person. Firstly, everything that that, that uh, others have said before me far more eloquently was true. I mean, even, even in his late 80s, this was a man of immense size. And I'm not just talking physically. I'm talking palpably in terms of the strength of character of this mm. man. 
Um, I, I do recall as an illustration of that one of the most interesting pieces of work we did together was how we would actually express uh, his biography, his own story mm-hmm. in relation to this effort. Um, and it did keep coming back to one point of the story. So every time I tried to write this, he said to me, it's not not there yet. Uh, and I would say, what do you mean, Ed? And he would say, it's not there yet. Go back and do it again. So they start again. Well, not start again, but so I became, I became aware that ultimately the piece that wasn't there yet um, in terms of how he wished it to be expressed was in fact the point in his own life, which perhaps, uh, well, many others have said, and he himself, I'm sure, would agree, uh, was the most challenging, which of course is the tragic death of his first wife and, and, and daughter. Mm. And um, that... Um, the emotional impact of that, um, I'm not sure whether this is well known, um, but of course Ed being Ed, uh, when the accident happened in the Himalaya, the plane crash, um, he insisted on being flown directly to the crash site. Um, and um, so the real impact on him was, um, the horror of all of that was mm. enormous. It, it had a massive impact on his life um, and his functionality uh, for a number of years and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, so the vulnerability of the man within that enormous um, capacity of character and strength mm. um, was also part of the privilege of the brief association that I had with him. Mm. Uh, I did ultimately get it sort of right in terms of how that was expressed. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, and he was he, wonderful um, generosity of spirit and sense of humour, as Peter and um, will uh, tell you. Um, far too generous in, in many ways with his um, mm-hmm. the the use of his name and so on and so forth. Within New Zealand particularly, there's a great many things associated with the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we were very conscious of the quality of what we were doing needed to be right up there and we needed to make sure that what we did was absolutely true to intent um, and... Um, as he said, get it right. Mm-hmm. And what were the what were the characteristics or the qualities that you could see him in him when he was in his eighties that that had driven him to achieve what he achieved and to climb these mountains and things? Well, perhaps the most interesting thing is is and again, if you contrast, if you're talking about leadership, uh, and amongst mm-hmm. our international board, we've got some pretty heavy hitters. You know, one of whom is the founder of Europe's most famous chief executive training school, INSEAD, uh, Manfred Kestevries. Um I think the abiding qualities of, of Ed that I certainly observed was this this was a man who was uh, his leadership style um, was absolutely compelling because he was uh, not without ego, uh, but he was without um, any sense of gratuity of any kind. So there was a job that needed to be done. Let's get on and do it, and I'm going to be out there with you doing it. Right. Uh, and the way we're going to express how we do it um, is going to be not about um, burnishing our uh, personal ego in any way. Mm. Um, so that's what so I mean by the, the work in the Himalaya over 50 years, the the enfranchising of, of communities up there. And I'm talking about generations now who, thanks to Ed's intervention with schools, with bridges, with hospitals, the Himalayan Trust work, mm. Um, has spawned young Nepali who are now doctors and pilots and teachers and mm. and they will tell you absolutely unequivocally um, that this opportunity would not have presented had it not been for that kind of work. And, and that kind of work was intensely pragmatic 
You know, mm. it wasn't that Ed stood up and said, "Let's build a school." Um, he went in and physically built the school, brought mm. the team together. And it's often, if you think about the story of of, of the mountain itself, um, again, uh, he will he will tell you um, it was the the magic of what John Hunt put together in the team as a whole, mm. not his personal heroics, which got him there. Right. So it wasn't a um, a top down structure. He was very much in amongst the team. Having and, said that, he was an obviously you know they talk about born leaders. Mm. Um, this is a man of enormous natural mana, uh, mm. and people would feel confident in his leadership. Without mm. um, and he certainly wasn't a saint. <laughs> um, wonderful sense of humor. Very very um, strong willed. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, the intention always, uh, let's get the job done and very generous in, mm. in, in the motivation. Mm. And when you weren't busy um, talking about the Institute and what it would become and, and the use, you know, um, yeah, what its values would be, what were some of the other things that you would talk with him about or, you know, I guess the small talk of conversation? What type of things did he enjoy? He didn't enjoy small talk of any kind, Stephen. Mm. <laughs> um, so he was right to the point. And, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm. And, and he was also failing. Let's, mm. let's, this was a man who was, you know, I remember June particularly being very um, reticent about this final trip to the ice because right. the, the resonance for her, is, as you're probably aware, she lost her first husband in the Erebus crash. Mm. Um, and the idea of, or the prospect of losing a second husband on the ice as well was something that um, she was very fearful of. And he was indeed very fragile, as, as your listeners will know, on that trip. Having mm. said that, he still did it. And, um, you know, it was, it was a magical um, a magical yeah. moment. Mm. So you were there when? No, I I, I gave up my seat um, to ensure that um, there were others who um, were frankly more important. Um, mm. Um, mm. Mm. And that's not an heroic gesture from me. It was just the pragmatism, and also given that the announcement was coming off the ice, somebody had to manage the announcement on shore. <laughs> I see. <laughs> you can't all be there because no, someone has so to. So my fiftieth birthday was spent on the phone to media all over the planet. You know, basically. That's ah, mm. right. Mm. And what happened in terms of how it developed and grew? So he was he was alive for another year mm. while it, while it was starting. It was while it was starting, and uh, uh, so what happened in that year was was basically the the establishment, as I say, of the international board. And the mm-hmm. first laureate was um, we then went into the laureate search program, which is something I still do on an annual basis. Um, that was designed deliberately to be a blind process, so you cannot apply. Mm. Um, and um, so what we do is we listen intently to people who um, offer us suggestions mm-hmm. um, as to who we should uh, do some homework on, uh, do diligence on, and then my job is to do that. Wow. Uh, and uh, by the end of March every year, I'm obliged to present the International Board with a shortlist of six, mm. uh, present them as fairly as possible, um, uh, and I stress that none of them know we're looking at them. Uh, so that means the due diligence is sometimes quite tricky because mm. uh, you're talking to people around them and saying, swearing them to secrecy and so on. Uh, and then I step out of the way and the international board convenes uh, and over the next three months um, makes the decision from six to one. Mm. So the and first example of that was 2008 and um, Jeremy Leggett, a uh, famous English um, solar entrepreneur and... Um, a hugely influential author, mm. um, was named as the first laureate, and mm. he uh, was 
technically the inaugural laureate in 2009. Right. And you mentioned that these, these, the people that you're selecting are in mid-career, so they, yes. they, they, it's not like they've finished their life work. They're actually being recognized for something that they're doing presently. Is That's that right? That's right. And the motivation for that um, it was simple. Um, there's a lot of effort put into um, you know, young starlets and uh, uh, giving people a, 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 a good uh, start-up. Uh, and there's quite a bit of effort put into honouring people who are uh, uh, in retiring phases. But frequently, as many chief executives will tell you, sometimes mid-career is the loneliest part of it all. Mm. Uh, so we felt it was important to, in the spirit of getting stuff done, <laughs> to honour and give more uh, support and weight to people who clearly were in the game and were going to be in the game for some time yet. In other words, how could we... Uh, assist them to do more of what they were already doing. Right. So that was the motivation for mid-career, yeah. and it's remained consistent over the last decade. Yeah. Mm. And when you're when you're involved in this search process, what are the what are some of the key things that you're looking for in these candidates? Well, the first thing is you asked me the question about Ed himself and what leadership looked like in terms of that man. So yes. we're looking for people who are again uh, more interested in the work than the ego. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is we certainly are looking for people who who. Are, proven as getting stuff done, implementers rather than you know, dreamers. Um, and I'm not taking anything what we need our dreamers, but but there's a difference here, yeah. um, which is important in the way we look at this. Um, and, um, and we're also looking for people who uh, have that other quality, which is that they are not... Um, a lot of founder directors, for instance, tend to be uh, terrific at the founding, but not at the... Continuing of right, the, ideas. the implementing. So, yeah. So again, there's there's a, there's a distinction here. We tend to look for people who we know are prepared to collaborate with others, uh, and now in our case, literally globally. Um, so, for instance, we had a whole team who went into the Paris climate talks in 2015. Um, so that's the other characteristic, and, and beyond that, it's 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 really not rocket science. Um, but um, there's some obvious things we avoid. Yeah. So, for instance, I say the process is blind. Uh, Peggy Liu, who sort of poster child for clean tech in China, uh, was a laureate in 2010. She was also a Davos young leader. Um, and after she was announced, within a month or so, I got a 46-page essay from one of her Davos young leaders' colleagues in Switzerland who was telling me in no uncertain terms just why he needed to be the next Hillary laureate. And following his 46-page expose on why he was absolutely the next, the next one, yeah. uh, was a 30-page recitation of the referees who would support his case, at which point I was able to politely say, well, look, I'm sorry, you've ruled yourself out. You cannot self-nominate. I see. <laughs> um, and uh, so he, he was demonstrating all the qualities which are quite easy for us to avoid, <laughs> if yes. you see what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, though, because uh, you know it's almost counterculture what you're looking for uh, in the sense of, our world or or media is after those self-promoting um, characteristics, and, and what you're saying is actually people who are putting the cause or the 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 purpose ahead of themselves. That's actually a key criteria for you. Absolutely, the yeah. the, the purpose is what matters. The impact is what matters. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yes, I think particularly now in in the age where, as you say, we're we're uh, particularly. Um, with social media uh, tending to um, exploit hugely the the phenomenon of, of what we would consider to be less interesting qualities, mm. <laughs> uh, to put it politely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
So in that sense, I, I guess you're right. It is counterintuitive. Yeah. No, but it's good. I like it. I mean, this mm. podcast I've called Talking Purpose, mm. and the idea behind it is that I can talk with people who are doing things a little bit differently and that mm. those conversations can be challenging to the listeners, that mm. someone could listen to what you're saying and realize, you know, maybe that it's become too much about themselves, mm. and, you know, that maybe they wouldn't fit the criteria that you're looking for. And that's, that's kind of a nice, uh, well, I'm hopeful that that would be something that can challenge people who are listening and, well, I think it crosses genres too, Stephen. Uh, mm. I, I mean, if you think about you know what constitutes a great actor versus mm. um, a, a star actor, quote unquote, it's often similar characteristics. You know, your Sean Penns of this world are capable of of extraordinary work uh, across a multiple number of roles and platforms and mm. genres. Why? Because they're interested in the craft. Mm. Um, they're not interested in burnishing their reputation via Facebook. And and so too, I think in 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 the sort of language of social entrepreneurship, I guess in many ways, as you say, purpose driven people, um, the best of them are often enormously successful because of that motivation. Yeah, um, that quality. Uh, that quality. Whereas there can be that that term heropreneurship, you know, that the person's doing it and it's all about me and I started this thing, and if I'm gone, then it's all going to fall apart. <laughs> well, I, I mean, in, in, in another piece of our work, which we might get to, I mean, um, it has support from various investment funds, one of which is called the Founders Fund. Now, the Founders Fund invests only in that kind of leadership model. Right. So they're only interested in founders. Um, and, and a founder often is, is, a, is a, particularly in the Silicon Valley genre, uh, is is a very distinct kind of individual, mm. um, and um, we're certainly the international laureates are, are very different from that mm. um, model. And it's not it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of of you know that's where our interest dominantly lies. Mm. Mm. And the, and just the full name of it is the Hillary Institute of International Leadership. Yes, you've left that word leadership in there. That's, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So so that then that traces back to what. Edmund Hillary would have, that was part of his um, mm. thinking around this, was that we're focusing on leaders mm. in their mid-career and encouraging mm. them in what they do. Well, I'll give you another example closer to home. The closest laureate thus far to New Zealand uh, is the former president of Kiribati, Sanoti Tong, who interestingly last year got the TED Prize as well, by the way, uh, a remarkable communicator. But he, he will tell you, uh, candidly, uh, his father's 87. Um, he spends his entire life now rebuilding the rock wall in front of the Urupa, 4,000-year whakapapa on his mm. island in the North Pacific. Mm. Why? Because it's washed over every two weeks. Um, and he's 87. He will die in Kiribati. Mm. Tong himself is now 68. Um, he will die in Kiribati. Uh, but he cannot and will not make the same promise to his eight children. So Anoti's time as president was all about confronting the reality that his own nation-state has, in terms of the reality of climate change, an absolute maximum of maybe two decades. Mm. Uh, and so the challenge globally that he's putting out there is who is going to assist us to actually migrate our entire population, which is about 103,000, of which 70,000 are now on the Tarawa Atoll, uh, one of the world's most dense mm. um, population um, places. Um, so, I mean... For Tong, it's absolutely about his people. Mm. Um, 
And this is a man of enormous gift and enormous eloquence um, who could take the stage and has done all over the world. Mm. Um, but it's it's not about him. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Mm. And what's the reaction of people um, when they're told that they've received this? Uh, well, it, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I always tell the story of Jeremy Leggett, the, the initial laureate, who was um, uh, up a tree in Bolivia uh, installing a solar plant when the call came. And... Um, it was the only place he could get reception. <laughs> and he, there was a pause because Cagle, David Cagle, the chairman of the time, and I made the call, and um, he said, you mean Sir Edmund Hillary? Because over the last decades, a lot of people confuse us with Hillary Clinton. Mm. Um, and, <laughs> and we said, yes, Sir Edmund Hillary. He said, well, that's fantastic. He said, I was born the day that Sir Edmund climbed Everest. Wow. Um, so that was one example. Yeah. Um, the most recent um, is a wonderful Swede, the current laureate called Johan Rockström, um, who heads the um, Stockholm um, Resilience Institute um, and is, again, a revered figure um, both in the business community and the academic community for his work on planetary boundaries and, and so on and so forth and economic leadership in what it's going to take to get the investment shifts necessary to really, you know, dealing with climate change seriously. Mm. Um, and again, he was, it was just um, so lovely to, you know, he was um, very, very gracious and very immediate uh, mm. in his response. And indeed, all of them. Um, nobody has turned us down. Mm. Um, nobody has seen this as a negative. Each of their experiences, because we work with them for a year, and then we continue to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, has been productive in different ways, mm. um, but um, no, it's it's um, it's frankly a privilege uh, mm. to to work with such people, and uh, and they in turn, um, many of them who have been highly decorated, you know, uh, Johan for instance has the French legend d'honneur and you know, multiple prizes all over the world. Um, why should a prize from the tiny Pacific in the name of um, Sir Edmund Hillary be valuable? Well, again, it comes back to the global recognition mm. of it, yeah. which in many ways I think is better understood than it is at home. Mm. Um, and um, that speaks volumes to the legacy mm. of, of Sir Edmund. Mm. That's really wonderful. Mm. And just turning tack a little bit, just about the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Right. Can you just describe a little bit about the origins of that? Because I well, know the, that the origins of that really came from two serendipitous things happening, Stephen. One was that um, the question had been asked of us by a number of stakeholders in New Zealand after a decade's work, what would it look like were the Institute to come home? So the Institute, frankly, is better known in Shanghai, New York, and London than it is in New Zealand. Um, and um, this happened to coincide with some remarkable work being done um, by a group of young Americans who had... Uh, come to New Zealand and set up a um, a festival called New Frontiers um, at their home valley called Araha Valley uh, in Upper Hutt. And uh, for some reason, I remember Lou Sanson and I both got similar calls and we were asked to come up and participate in this. And I was uh, a young African that appeared on my doorstep and who I'd never met before. I don't know how he got to me, but <laughs> asked me if I would speak. And... Um, Cut a long story short, I found myself on the stage with um, the lead um, character from this community and the festival, whose name is Matthew Monaghan. And Matthew um, was chairing the session I was 
uh, I was delivering, um, and I he started talking about New Zealand as an incubation nation. And um, I said to him immediately, well, look, I'm going to throw away my notes because what you've just said is far more interesting to me than what I was going to talk to you about. So why don't we have a uh, talk about this issue, the potential of New Zealand? Um, and uh, to cut a long story short, what happened there was that what they had in mind was a new kind of visa program, a new kind of um, migrant program predicated on similar values, really, in some ways, to our international work, i.e. purpose-driven a so-called global impact visa, the idea of inviting people from all over the planet to come to New Zealand with a great idea which they could develop here uh, and but be mindful that its impact and scale would then be taken back out uh, to the larger economies from whence they came. As I say, my current chairman, Anaki Goodall, the former Naitahu chief executive, and I had been charged by our own board to look at the future of the institute and the government had asked us what would it look like if you came back to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't instead of the international. This was as right. well as yeah. Um, and uh, so um, yeah. So like um, you say, there's a good synergy there, though. There was a synergy. Yeah. There was an obvious synergy. Before long, we found ourselves in a situation where that synergy resulted in some formal, um, deeper conversation. So without um, wishing to go into too much detail, we found ourselves quite quickly in receipt of um, a. Uh, an opportunity to formally present to government. Um, it was a competitive process. We won the bid. We then were asked to put in a bid, uh, and this resulted in uh, last year in the formation of what has become the Edmund Hillary Fellowship slash Global Impact Visa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think um, one of the first recipients of that, I was able to interview Emmeline Pat Dostrom about space. So that was a fascinating interview. Indeed. And, yeah. Uh, so. Uh, Yep. And she and her husband are, are remarkable characters, um, and um, he being American, Belgian, and she being Filipino, having reflecting really what turned out to be fifty-seven different countries uh, applying wow. for that first cohort, um, and um, putting us in a very strong position uh, to be quality-led. Um, and um, this program has huge ambition, um, and as you will have heard there, mm. uh, the first cohort is fascinating. We've applied the 80-20 rule. Uh, what does that mean? It means that 80% of them are internationals, 20% of them are Kiwi. Mm-hmm. Um, Rod Oram, for instance, is one of the first fellows, mm-hmm. um, a prominent Kiwi journalist. And, yep. um, and the intention is to, to take these people from all parts of the world, bring them to New Zealand, give them this three-year global impact visa, and see what they can create here. Yes, so in the spirit of that initial conversation with Matthew and I at the New Frontiers Festival, um, New Zealand is an incubation nation playing out in in the spirit of that. So Mm. the the fellows have a three-year window um, to develop um, whatever their idea of product or service is, um, and um, at the end of that, for the internationals, um, they will get a passport if if they um, hold true to the principles of their fellowship, which mm-hmm. is, is um, rigorous but not, um, not hazardous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the glue for us is interesting because our challenge, of course, is, is how do we uh, make sure that the balance between pastoral care, if you will, of each cohort and not getting in their way because they're entrepreneurs, they don't want people standing over them, mm. uh, is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, each cohort is different. Yeah. Uh, we're just finishing selection of the second cohort as we speak. Um, by f- four or five years' time, we will have 500 fellows. Mm. Um, so this starts to become quite interesting in scale. Mm. 
Um, they are not all entrepreneurs. Some of them are investors. Mm-hmm. Um, that first cohort has, I can't remember the number, it's about $3.5 billion worth of investment access uh, mm-hmm. rolled up into it. Mm-hmm. So, so some of them are coming to look to invest directly um, in, mm-hmm. in good ideas. So it, it's an interesting mix. Um, and I think it, in terms of immigration, um, anywhere, but particularly in New Zealand, it really answers that call to how do we experiment uh, at least to try and get this thing right. So when people talk yeah. about Skillshare, for instance, um, and making sure that the profile of, of our migrants is based on something other than just quantum, um, this is a interesting way to, uh, to I think, uh, potentially show the way for a much larger number of people uh, yeah. as, a, as a design, if you will. Yeah. Um, but also I think it's got enormous potential. Um, and so we're, we're very aware of, of, as I say, getting this right, quote unquote, because yeah. of where it could go. Uh, and thus far, it's been, you know, that first cohort is wonderful. Yeah. You know? And then, well, of course, it, the issue then becomes how do the laureates internationally relate to the first cohort? So mm-hmm. Johan, the current laureate I've been speaking of, uh, a wonderful Swedish friend, is coming down specifically in the time frame which coincides with the induction of the second cohort right. in April next year. So his first audience will be... As a, as a Hillary laureate, will be working with the Hillary Fellows. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, there's a lot of other people want him to, the Prime Minister and so on and so forth, uh, want to work with him while he's here. But yeah. but it's an example of how we start to amalgamate the two layers of the cake. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing that I find amazing about our conversation is just thinking back to you went to that meeting, you know, a couple years ago now. Mm-hmm. And you were trying to think of an idea that was so far out that it It'd would be an exit it, strategy. That, yeah, that, I mean that they would never say yes. Yeah. And yeah. and in fact, what's happened is that 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 crazy they'll never say yes idea mm-hmm. has led and had flow-ons that you would never have envisaged at that time. I imagine you know because think about it now. You've got these cohorts of people coming through. Mm-hmm. You've got these amazing well, I individuals. To add, Stephen, if there's a lesson in all of that, it is again the lesson that this was not me mm. that did this mm. um i happened to be daft enough on that day to put up that proposition but yeah. you know as i said right away people came with me yes uh, and that's the john hunt motif with ed in terms of the everest team yeah. and and i think that any good idea if, if it really is a good idea it has a magnetism about it which will draw people to it mm. of, of caliber and strength and particularly if it is in the spirit of what you're doing with your wonderful program, purpose-driven rather mm. than just about the ego or just about making mm. the next million. Mm. Um, ironically, a lot of these ideas tend to make a lot of money if they're you know uh, well um, well um, focused. Yeah. But I, I, it, it's yeah, it's fascinating how people will gravitate um, if if the motivation is strong enough. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I really you know people ask me what I do and what my role is and you know how important I am. Well, basically, I'm just a glorified scout. You know. Um, <laughs> And there's a it's quite fun, though, oh, <laughs> being able to go out and, and investigate people without their knowing and it's, seeing what you can... It's, what, a, it's a great privilege. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, you know, people think I've got this glorious life of, of, of wandering around the planet at will. It's not quite like that. Um, if you do 22 <laughs> cities in 10 days, it's a bit more strenuous, but, <laughs> but it nonetheless is a privilege. Yeah, yeah. And, and I like the way you, you phrase that. I mean, I was going to go on to say you were then talking with people who were saying yes, yes, yes to the idea, and then it built a team that was then able to approach Edmund, Hillary, and, you yes. know, that, that, that clearly it was reflective of what the organization became, which was the, the team approach. 
Yeah. And then that has embodied through the selection process and the people that you're looking for. It's not about the one person or the individual. No. It's actually about the purpose and the cause that they're furthering. So Indeed it is. Yeah. And I think, again, it's, um, it's somebody was asking me about Elon Musk the other day, and I, I, I happen to know his ex-wife. Um, and um, they have five children, um, twins and triplets, um, and they're separated. And they're separated, not because of any fault of one of them. Justine, in her own right, is a, is a, is a in the states at least, an enormously famous um, uh, author of young adolescent literature. Mm. Um, Eon, of course, is, is is quite good at a number of things. <laughs> um, but um, again, you know, it's this, this idea of of nothing is impossible uh, if you are prepared to build. Uh, momentum and people around the idea, no matter how incredibly daft. And I come back to where I started this proposition too. It's very important to me uh, to ensure that that journey involves with everybody who touches it, um, ensuring that they have a sense of agency, uh, that they can participate, that they can play a part, they can add value to the proposition. Mm. Um, I think that you know, if you if you take climate change as an issue in terms of the enormously interesting times we live in, which in, at one level is sort of existential challenges like climate change and Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, on the other, it's almost a renaissance age in terms of the opportunities that, that are there ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a balancing act which we rather need to get right. But, but yes, it, it's the courage that thinkers like Musk um, have um, is vital. But it's equally vital uh, for everyone who's associated with that courage to feel that they have a role to play. Mm. Um, the single greatest danger we have in relation to solving climate change or or, or dealing with um, um, the nuclear issue, for instance, with North Korea, is people feeling this is all too hard. Mm. Uh, <laughs> there's only one answer if it's all too hard, mm. and it ain't pretty. Mm. Um, so I guess there's been a learning for me through this process. It, it, it is that you know genuinely anything is possible, so long as everyone involved has agency. Yeah, one of the people I interviewed was named Netta Egos, and she said, um, "Just because you can't change everything doesn't mean you should do nothing." Precisely. The, you have to take the steps that you can take, whatever that is, in your own sphere of influence and and as your own individual circumstance. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mark, it's been a great pleasure to have you on. I really appreciate it. I didn't know we were going to go into opera, <laughs> into acting, into Sir Edmund Hillary. There's many, many dimensions of our conversation today, and I think the listeners will be fascinated by our conversation. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for yours, Stephen. A great, great pleasure. Thank you. Well, I certainly learned a lot about Sir Edmund Hillary and the principles of leadership that he displayed. I also really enjoyed learning about Mark and his varied career and the life that he's led so far. The more I think about it, it's actually amazing the variety and quality of people that I've met doing these podcasts who are also based here in Christchurch, and I just had no idea that they were here until I started interviewing. And I'd encourage all of you, wherever you are, to stay curious about the people that you're meeting every day. Now, in the next episode, we'll be speaking with Catherine Brown, who's the CEO of the Lord Mayor's Foundation in Melbourne, Australia, and that funds many charities and social enterprises over there. Here's an excerpt of my interview with Catherine. Well, I feel like we're kind of social investors, really, 
uh, I, I feel like more than just I don't like the traditional paternalistic kind of handing out grant type of mm. feeling. I always say to the team, we're just custodians, you know. Um, but really, to see the organisations that are doing well or with some more investment can do even better, mm-hmm. um, or to in support the people who are thinking in sort of future focused way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's what gets me excited. Mm. Well, I hope you can join me in that next episode talking with Catherine. Until next time.